to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. We are going to be in Daniel chapter 7, finishing up chapter 7 this morning. Um, and um, like we've looked at before, um, um, we saw where these Hebrew writers, um, uh, Daniel um, wrote those first bits of chapter 1 in Hebrew and then went to Aramaic for chapters 2 through 7. And uh, that was a, an achiastic form. It was, it's a form of writing. And so we saw where um, chapter 7 is actually a parallel dream there, parallel visions connected to chapter 2. And so um, that's the last time we're going to kind of talk about that. Uh, chapters 8 through 12 are going to continue on this theme more about God's kingdom not so much about Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego's lives. And so um, we're going to see the, the, the beautiful picture that, that, that they started in chapter 2 with that statue um, with the four kingdoms that were brought out. And then chapter 7 ties into that with four beasts, if you remember, four, four uh, kingdoms coming out of the statue in chapter 2, and then four beasts is what we saw at the beginning of chapter 7, parallel dreams that God gave both of those dreams, and so he was wanting to communicate something. Um, And the main point we saw in chapters 4 and 5 was God was screaming, so that chiasm builds to the middle, and at the middle God was screaming, you as a people are following your idols, you're loving your idols, and you have forsaken the one true God. And so then building out of that is the rest of chapters uh, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And so um, the one true God is faithful to his holy justice is what we saw last week. And we're going to see at the end of this that he's also, also faithful to his kingdom. Um, uh, and going forward, we're going to see, like I said at the beginning, this, this meta-narrative. God gives a glimpse, and it's just a glimpse, a little bitty glimpse here, um, uh, of his perspective. Just a few sentences, and it's somewhat blurry in details, but it, it's clear in its broader scope. And you're going to see Daniel getting a little frustrated, it, just like us. We want to know the details. We want to know, is there this Antichrist? What does he look like? What is he exactly going to do? What about these other nations? What about the things that are going on in the end times? What about um, a global pandemic and all the hurricanes and all the tsunamis and all the um, earthquakes and all the, the powers and the wars and the rumors of wars? And, and Jesus addressed all of that. And he didn't even give any more clarity to that. He was just saying, keep your head down, be faithful, make disciples, keep your eyes on me. And so um, whether you interpret the four beasts as four successive kingdoms, so we showed that it looks kind of clearly, a lot of people would lean towards scholars and brilliant theologians would lean towards that being Babylon. We know for sure out of chapter two, he did interpret for us that the, the head of the statue was Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that? So we know for sure that was Babylon, right? Um, but then if you go, well, the next one was the Medo-Persians, and then the next ones were Greece, Alexander the Great. And then the next was the Romans, the mighty Romans. And so on that statue, if you interpret it that way, or if you say 
I don't think it was exactly like that, um, it, but maybe it's just ongoing kingdoms of men, powerful leaders, powerful forces, dominions and rulers on this earth, um, as far as earthly, physical people. You may interpret it that way. There's a lot of scholars and theologians that have interpreted it through the centuries that way, um, but all of which are opposed to God and his purposes. Um, so either way, Daniel 7 reminds us that we are in the midst of spiritual warfare. What God is pulling back and showing is don't forget, I've been talking about Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Nebuchadnezzar and um, these other physical things. I I'm taking your eyes up to remind you there's a spiritual battle going on. And I'm going to mention some things about the end and about the spiritual warfare that's going on on a bigger scale. And you're not going to get all the details, but I'm telling you, I went out in the end. I went out. I'm the one true living God. I'm a redeemer. I'm a rescuer. I'm a savior. That's what I'm showing you. And so that's very clear. So this is spiritual warfare. Um, it goes on with our lives, our families, our, our churches, our choices to either live for God and obey him or to trust in the world's fallen system or our own sin, defying God as God. And so um, that's what we saw in chapters 4 and 5. The central message of Daniel was you're following your own heart and your own idols. You're defying God. That's why he wanted to clarify through this book of Daniel to the world. So chapters 7 through 12, taking a turn from that narrative about them and their physical lives to the truth that God's kingdom is coming. Um, God's kingdom will triumph over all things. So if you're a follower of Christ, um, you, you don't have to worry about those specifics. You don't have to worry about the details. Um, his kingdom is going to be everlasting, just as promised all the way back in Genesis. Think through that. Whether you go, hey, the earth's been around 10 billion years or four or 5,000 years. With all the humans and all mankind and all their sin, he has worked out every single promise with no problem at all. He never woke up a day and said, oh man, this oh, I, I didn't realize what was going on in the Middle East. Uh, I better devise another plan. Because he was never sleeping. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He's always sovereignly in control and being overly gracious to people like you and me. At the same time, being gracious to people who defy him and nations and kingdoms and kings who defy him, people. So all these stories have been revealing something about God, something about his power, his authority, his sovereignty, revealing him as the only God. His kingdom will be shown now as we're turning in chapters 8, 9, and 10, 11, 12 about that, that kingdom coming. And so the reality of spiritual war that's against God in his kingdom that's against souls. So these are talking about the schemes of the devil. Um, starting with Adam and Eve, all was very good. We know early on, all was very good. So God's, God, God doesn't have to go back and tell us this in Daniel. We know that at the beginning, everything is good. And he tells them, partake, eat of all of this, enjoy all that I've given you, but don't do this. And what do they do? And what does Satan do? So we see Satan comes, and he defies God's glory. He offers another path, another approach and temptation. And so since the fall, God has been working out his redemptive plans since that time. Um, but life here on earth is going to be a constant spiritual warfare. With moments of light enjoyment, right? You have some light enjoyment, maybe this afternoon, maybe this next week, maybe this summer. So some um, entertainment, um, some, some rest, 
But what happens when you enter into those entertaining times for three or four hours watching a game or going for a week's vacation somewhere? You know the battle's coming back, right? Like the vacation just doesn't last forever where you get to just forget about all the responsibilities, all the difficulty, all the different things that you're dealing with. Um, We quickly are reminded that um, we are in a spiritual warfare. And I think that not just the American church, but I think as believers, we, we try to get away from that storyline. I, I believe that um, a lot of us just don't want that storyline. It, it's the reason we don't pray. Because I don't want to think about that storyline. My family, my marriage, my kids, people in our small group, people in our church, extended family members, I, I just... I just don't want to think about that. It's spiritual war that's going on. Yes, it's a physical body with flesh and blood. It's the sin inside the heart that's causing the problems, right, James? What's causing these these troubles and these fights among you? And so we have to remember it's spiritual warfare, and we don't like that storyline. It's the reason that we hide. We either hide from people. I, I will let you get a certain closeness to me, and I, I will pull back from the relationship. We, we go into pretending and performing. We can come and pretend and put on a good show at church or small group, but how do I treat people in my workplace? How does my family look at me? We, we perform. We try to do more and more for God. Um, it's why we look for escapes. Um, it's too heavy. It's too weighty. It requires too much. When, when my heart wants comfort, and fun and entertainment. And spiritual warfare says there's something more serious going on. And the proof is, look at your prayer time this last week compared to the trivial times you spent just searching the Internet. Mindless wonder. It may be TV, maybe just trivial stuff on the web compared to the weightiness of prayer. Whether we like it or not, it is spiritual battle that we're living out. Um, and that, that's what chapter 7 at the end, God throws this in now. Like if you've been seeing the physical lives here, I'm wanting to remind you there's a spiritual warfare going on. So Ephesians 6, very well-known um, section, um, it's saying that spiritual war is real and not optional. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So again, back to Adam and Eve. That, that's where this started. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So, so here, here's the reminder. Here's these people in my life. Does anyone feel like you're wrestling against flesh and blood a lot? You're wrestling against these people? So, so what are the three things that we need to have clarity to be able to pray on. So first of all, we've three easy categories, Satan and his minions, Satan and the demonic. They're, they're wanting to cause destruction and sin, right? Always tempting. The second is the fallen system of the world, just the world system. It's fallen, it's broken because of sin, right? That's the second category. And the third is your own heart. You need to be able to discern when you feel like you're wrestling against people, oh, well, let, let's start with, we want to start with either them are teamed up with Satan. <laughs> that's where we start, right? Like that's their problem. They're being satanic right now. Well, maybe it's my heart. 
Maybe it's sin. I need discernment and wisdom to know maybe I've got a huge log in my eye and I'm wanting to show them all the splinters. And that's what we do inside the church. And so starting with just that first one, hey, the first category is your own sin. This is a spiritual war. And God may be allowing this situation in your life for him to bring the spirit in to go to war over your soul, right? Because you don't want to be Romans 1 type person that keeps on going to different levels of a hardened heart. And so um, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But it seems like it. It seems like it's these people. And we've got to remember those three categories. Because Satan and his minions, the demonic, this fallen world system, and our own hearts. Those are the areas, and that's why it seems like he's the problem. She's the problem. They're the problem. But we're wrestling against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. Someone should write a book called that. And so um, God is saying at the end of chapter 7 here, that's what's going on. Here's all these kingdoms. I started this book out by, here's this king, powerful. Here's this king, powerful. They're nothing to me. They can't do anything. And then here's these situations, powerful leaders. They can't do anything. They, can, they can't even kill people if I don't want them dead. And then we go into chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and God is saying, here's my kingdom. I'm going to take down every kingdom, every dominion, every power. What he talks about in Ephesians 6 here, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're going to see this. I think it's chapter 9. Um, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. So your immediate lives, your marriage, your kids, your parents, people, souls around you, he's screaming, wake up. There's a spiritual battle going on, and you're, you're not even paying attention to that. You're getting caught up in, in, in mindless things, so you're not praying. You're getting caught up in your own preferences, and you're not praying. You'd rather argue about the eschatology than you would treat someone loving. You'd rather argue about your stances on certain things than you would be loving and be prayerful. And so this is a spiritual war. Don't, don't lull out by thinking your choices don't matter. Uh, chapter 7 of Daniel reveals this. So let's pray as we dive into chapter 7. Father, we do thank you that you are sovereign, that you are the one ruler. Thank you that you secure secure our hearts in that. We thank you for this word in Daniel 7 that reminds us of these truths, and you confront our hearts to see that it is not flesh and blood that we're, we're, we're battling against, but it is um, Satan and his his minions. It is the demonic. It is this fallen world system that, that people around us and ourselves are getting lost in our lusts, our desires, our own perspective, our own way, and then our own sin in our own heart, Father. Would you help us to see that clearly? But would you help us to put our trust in you and not in fixing ourselves or fixing others, but that we would be faithful to you because you have provided faithfulness in yourself. In your name we pray, amen.
So um, what does Daniel see in chapter 7? Just a quick recap there. Um, that first of all, just wanted to recap. We're going to be hitting that number 5 there, 19 through 28 today. Um, it's more on those the fourth beast and, and, and the, the one little horn that Daniel had interest in. But uh, just remember that we started out looking at the four beasts that, that re- represented these four kingdoms. Or if you want to say, well, it's the four kingdoms and it, it's still ongoing kingdoms, ongoing forces. I would say that would be probably pretty accurate. Um, uh, then also, I brought a, a great courtroom in the Ancient of Days that we've sang about. Um, a great courtroom. The Ancient of Days shows up. Um, the Son of Man coming again and his kingdom coming. And then an interpreter of the kingdom that brings some clarity. And then this week we're looking at 19 through 28, just seeing that he is faithful to his glorious eternal kingdom. So aren't you glad that we didn't make this study about Daniel? Aren't you glad that we didn't make the focus on you be like Daniel, you be faithful, that we said, hey, Daniel is small and weak, and we're seeing right here in chapter 2, he's frail and fearful. You don't need to be like Daniel. There's a greater Daniel, and we're supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ. It's clear, yeah, be a faithful Christian, but we're not putting our hope in Daniel. We haven't made this about Daniel. This is about God. In chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, Daniel drops out of the picture. It's a big, glorious God that we're talking about. So last week, the walk away was knowing that God's bringing his justice. It's overtaking evil. God is in control of all things. And so God's timing of divine justice is bringing about his kingdom. So if you remember at the beginning of chapter 7, I just wanted to bring this out because this sets the tone for the section we're in in the last verses of chapter 7. Daniel said, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. This is uh, chapter 7, 16 through 18. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are the four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So again, not much clarity. Uh, There are four kings who shall arise. The saints of the Most High are then going to be brought in, and and, and they're going to be brought in as a kingdom. So you you can imagine Daniel being a little frustrated. He he goes to this angelic being, steps over. He's fearful, like tearful, crying, seeing all this incredible stuff. And he goes and asks this angelic being, and he just says, yeah, the that represents four kingdoms. They're going to rise, they're going to fall, and God's saints are going to take over the kingdom. Well, that, that doesn't help a whole lot. And so it's not a lot of clarity. So the angelic being, he, he adds little to what Daniel had heard way back in chapter 2. Daniel's probably like, remember Daniel's in his mid-80s now. Remember, he was like 14 or 15 and he was like, yeah, I was the one who gave the interpretation of the statue. I knew this already. This is like 60 years later, and you're just telling me there's four kingdoms. Thanks a lot, bud. And so, so Daniel has a second inquiry. So look at verses 19 through 22. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in places and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So, So again... 
Daniel's wanting to know more here. And so we see here, it gets a little bit of clarity. The horn, the little horn, made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So most of us go, well, what does that mean exactly? Most of us are going, hold it, there's a little horn coming, and he's making war with the saints, and he prevailed over them. We want to know exactly what that looks like, right? So, so when is that guy coming? What is that going to look like? Um, uh, how do we make it through if, if he prevails over them? And he doesn't give us the details. Uh, you, you can feel it's almost begging for us to speculate on that, isn't it? It's begging. There, there's lots of people that have spent 50 years just writing books on, on, on these things. A lot of speculation there. But God didn't bring clarity on the specifics, on the details there. Um, the Ancient of Days shows up. Well, we, we, we know that. Judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. So, so there's your reward. And he says, the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Well, those are helpful, still, still big, um, broad strokes. Let's go on through uh, chapter uh, through verses 23 through 28. This is the angelic being's interpretation of verses 21 and 22. So if you look at 21 and 22, this horn making war, prevailing against the saints, and then the Ancient of Days coming, judgment coming, but then the saints possess the kingdom, the angelic being gives some interpretation. It's still not extremely clear. Verse 23 says, Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, so we see the interpretation of the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. And now notice this, he we had a change. We went from them, those, to he, personal pronoun. So it seems to be an individual. He shall be different from the other ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. So we get a little more here, but it's still very large brushstrokes. God is not giving us the details. The angelic being is not giving us the details. I would say the angelic being doesn't have the details. Um, so we do know, first of all, that the fourth beast is a powerful kingdom. Um, the little horn is definitely a, a person, a king or a world leader of some time. So you see that in verses 24 and 25. It takes that personal pronoun, he. It seems as though he takes down three other leaders at some point, three other kings. Out of those ten, three get taken by, down by the little horn, right? So the ten kings has baffled scholars and theologians because if they go with Rome as the fourth kingdom, if you go hardlining, black and white, that the statue represents... Um, uh, Babylon, Medo-Persians, Greece, and Rome. If you hardline on that, well, then this this fourth kingdom, that's Rome. What happens when Rome, um, the, the last um, leader in Rome was taken down? Ten kings didn't rise out of Rome. There wasn't ten leaders. They can't trace that historically. You can still agree with, with that and go, 
Oh, maybe it's um, what I would kind of call, and I'll talk about this in a second, um, uh, a dual um, significance of Scripture. And so you see, you see that in prophecy sometimes. It's speaking immediately to Israel. Um, and it was talking about, hey, this is where you're at. There's judgment on you right now. There's discipline on you right now. But look to, to God as your Savior. Well, that, that, that's a dual meaning because that's the same thing for us because the thing that we're, we know is we have Christ. They didn't understand Christ completely, so it was for them at that time, but also there's meaning and significance in that for us as well. And so um, if, if people hardline on it's the four um, kingdoms there, um, there were no ten kings to rise up and lead Rome after its last emperor. So um, some people will land on, well, it's kingdoms and nations will continue to rise up, rise and fall until the end. And so um, that's probably where I would go, that I, I do, I do kind of see it as those four kingdoms. Um, there, there's some more scriptures that, that really detail out those four specifics. If you believe that, it doesn't mean that it can't mean others beyond that also, though. And so when people hardline that and say it couldn't mean anything else, that's just a difficult place to be. Um, um, many interpretations on verse 25. Uh, people are just all over the place on this. But, but this is where some interpret this, tying it to other scriptures to mean the three and a half years during the tribulation. So if you've ever read the Left Behind series or watched the movies, um, the, the whole Left Behind by Tim, Tim LaHaye. So there's this idea that um, things are going to get so horrible for, for and we're going to get to this bad time where there's seven years of tribulation, three and a half years of prospering, and then three and a half years of just horrific slaughter by the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to come on the scene and um, he's going to just have bring on all kinds of horrible things. So some people interpret this right here, that the time for a time, times, and half a time. So they say the word time means one year, times, plural, means two, and they hardline that it could mean three or four, like times can't mean plural lots, but times means two exactly. So you got one time, then times, that's three, and then half a time, half a year is what they land on. Um, all kinds of different things in the Hebrew for those words as far as does that specifically mean one year? It, it, it does not. It can mean that, but it, it can mean other things also. Um, so, But that's where some people fit this into, oh, my eschatology leads me to this tribulation period, seven years, three and a half years of, of good, things are going peaceful in the world, three and a half years of just where the Antichrist turns on the people of God and destroys them. And so that's where they get this, this, this Antichrist type person. Um, um, so um, I believe the wording is intentional to mean it's a fixed time that God has allowed, that he knows about, that is uh, in his complete exact control. It doesn't necessarily mean three and a half years, but God is saying, I I'm this precise on this. It's I'm in control of this. I'm setting the time limits on this. Um, do we realize how arrogant that we can be thinking um, that we have to have and know the specifics. And then I think you're foolish and an idiot if you don't agree with me. Do we realize, so, so just think about all the books they would say, and we would all kind of admit, hey, so we're a, a biblically illiterate crowd, right? We're uh, kind of prayerless. Um, we're kind of consumeristic. We're very distracted culture, and we're kind of semi-committed Christians. But surely we're going to know what's right. Surely. When you've had people for centuries, like all they had to do was just sit and read and study. They knew like seven languages. 
you know, and, and they, that's all they did and, and read other, they didn't have distractions, distractions and all the things that we have. And yet we think that we know black and white, this is what's right. And you're foolish if you don't believe what we believe. So, um, the arrogance that we have, even we see it in the new Testament with the disciples as Jesus kept telling them. And as it got closer to the cross, I'm telling you, the chief priests are going to come and grab me. They're going to take me off. I'm going to be put to death and raised three days later, later. And like he told them that repeatedly and more consistently as it got closer and those 12 and the other bigger crowd of about 120, none of them had a clue after it was happening. It's like, I told you repeatedly, you've been with me. You watch me do miracles. You watch me do all these things. It happened exactly like I told you. And now you guys have no clue. Well, I don't know what happened in the grave. He's just gone. He's gone. We don't know. Like, remember, so we talked about that at Easter. Like, they just didn't get it. And so here we are, not walking with Jesus three and a half years personally, and, and we think that we've got it all figured out. Um, we, we have to look at just some of the arrogance that we walk in. We get misled horrifically by bloggers and social media pundits who are complete fools. We, we, we just read a couple of articles by somebody who's never even studied the history of the church or, or scripture. But yeah, we've got it all worked out. Um, there are these double implications, dual prophetic nature of Scripture. Um, so I personally see these evil empires of man as Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece, and Rome. I see that, but continuing on, these evil kingdoms past Rome, reigning and living in rebellion to God, living for power, for money, for oppression, for massacre, for, for destruction, for greed, lust, debauchery, um, prideful autonomy, all of that as if God did not exist. That's what chapter 4 and 5 was saying. You're going to live for these other things and act as if I didn't exist. You're going to defy me, chapters 4 and 5, the central message. And then we see it continuing as he talks about these kingdoms. So you think through, um, there's a guy in the, in the third century, Domitian. He was a Roman guy. And, and this whole century was known, was called the century of blood, the hundred years of blood, because he killed so many Christians. It was a year, I mean, a century of martyrdom. Um, now, um, it was so horrible that, that people believing, so, you know, figure the 200s, 300s AD after Christ, they felt like this is the, this is the end times. This is the end times. In fact, some of the books in the New Testament was addressing people who thought maybe we missed it. Like maybe Jesus came back like he promised and we don't know what happened. Like he missed us. And so, and they're like, you see the crazy stuff that's going on? He seems like a tin horn guy. He seems like the little horn that's causing destruction. So that was in the 200s. That was in the 300s. That was in the first century. That was in the 80s and 90s AD. Um, and then you think through um, some of the popes even. They, they said this. We're going to see in a second. Some of the popes they, they considered. This is how evil this guy. What do you think it was like for the world scene with guys like Hitler? And who was Hitler mainly against? God's people, the Jews, Israel, right? Six million slaughtered. Um, Mussolini, Stalin, Kim Jong, Mao, Mao shutting out um, Christianity out of China, um, beastly leaders. So I, I do say that the four kings were those, but I see many beastly kings that are still coming. Um, communism, talk about beastly powers, communism. Hey, how about this one? Anyone scared of socialism? Huh? Huh? Last election? COVID, got anyone worried about socialism? What about capitalism? 
Oh, that, that's great. Thank you. That's a gift. Man, all of those are used for evil. And I know so that, that, that steps on your toes because you're all about earning and profiting. All of those systems can be used for evil. They're not God's holy, righteous system. All of those systems are beastly powers where some profit and there's oppression of others. And so all of those beastly powers, all of those beastly leaders, um, some identified Antiochus, Epiphanes, a lot of scholars say that, um, that as he was the one that, that came and he was the one that was the, the leader from Rome that was, that was going to be the one that was known as the little horn. So I'm just letting you know, it's very arrogant for in the 70s, some scholars in America, 3.5 of the world's population to go, we've figured it out. It's going to be a guy that's going to rise up over there. Hey, if you're a Chinese Christian, if you're a Japanese Christian, South Korean Christian, uh, a Christian that was raised as a Muslim and you lived in Afghanistan or Iraq or Iran and you came to faith, somehow the gospel made it to you, who do you think that you may be looking at as a country that could be that evil empire and that could be that tenth horn? Reagan? Bush? Clinton, Trump, Obama, Biden. We think that they see us as a Christian nation, and yet they land at our airport, and there's an 80-foot-long Victoria's Secret woman laying there, and they're going, yep, this Christian nation. And we think, well, that doesn't represent us. That represents the great, 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 great majority of our country. So yes, we're thankful for our country and the freedoms that we have, but we also don't want to force Christianity onto people, right? So like that, that doesn't work, right? Everyone learned history that that doesn't work well. And so we, we're, we're represented sometimes in our own eyes as this, this holy, just thing that, that's just not accurate in God's eyes. And so um, all of these things just show us that, that, that we can be very arrogant when we begin to think through our eschatology. Um, the, so I do believe that this, this little horn, I do believe that there is, um, in the end times, going to be this person that rises up. Um, and in that, um, that person who's going to rise up, I believe there are antichrists and deceivers everywhere. And in every time period, there are antichrists and, and deceivers. So you'll see that in First John, that John talks about that there's, there's, it's almost like he says, a separation. There's an antichrist coming, a person, an antichrist coming, but there's antichrists among you now. They're false teachers. Anyone who's saying that, that, that speaking bad things about God, well, think through history. All those people, um, like in verse, uh, verse 5, talks about speak clearly against God. Do you know how many of those have occurred in the last 2,500 years? So it's just arrogant for us to think our 3.5% of our population in America that we've got this figured out. So um, as he goes on, 26 is a big summary statement. 26, it's all pointing back to the same idea that this court with this ancient of days would be presiding, that it will rip him away and be consumed and destroyed. And that ties back to verse 19, or I'm sorry, Revelation 19, where the two beasts are cast into the lake of fire. So, so one last thing on verse 27. It says, saints are not only going to rise 
so we can see the saints are not only going to rise from the dead and given new immortal bodies, but we're going to rule and reign with Christ as vice regents in the new heaven and the new earth. So that may be kind of weird to you, but we, we, we say we believe this story that God's renewing all things, God's recreating all things, right? So he's renewing Eden. And so look at uh, Genesis 1, 26. Look at Genesis 1. And so if you remember starting out, so here, here we are at Daniel 7, the end of Daniel 7, and God's talking about these big, broad strokes about I'm bringing my kingdom. There's a judgment coming, and I'm bringing my kingdom. Look, look at uh, chapter 1 of Genesis. And then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have, now notice these words, dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. What's the next step after the sixth day? What did God do? He rested. And he was saying there, I'm going to set up, I'm going to, I've created things. You're going to be my vice regents. You're going to be reigning and having dominion and power and authority. And sin came in and destroyed it all. And since that time, God has been renewing and recreating a new Eden, a new heaven, a new earth. He recreated you. You're a new creation that's going to reign with Christ in that. And so the biggest question there should just be, why me? Why have I been brought into this kingdom? Why in the world with all of my sin, with all that I've done against his holy name, why would he allow me to hear the gospel? So um, we can see there, he gets extremely vague, and he goes into this big meta-narrative, and even to the point as if God were saying, your focus should not be on the little horn and knowing all the tiny details, but your focus has to be on me. Trust in me. Just trust in me in this. Um, those are all um, the things that, that, that people have had a hard time with in that little section there in Daniel. It's very difficult to interpret, very hard to have hard lines on. Um, so, and many of those things talk about persecutions from the outside. So you've got the church reading that and thinking through, oh, those are all those evil people on the outside, right? Well, like I said, if you study church history, um, even so in 1 John, uh, is, uh, John the apostle is the only one who um, mentions Antichrist by name. So that's the only place in the Bible. So it's not in the Old Testament. It's not in the New Testament, except for John. He does in 1 John uh, and, and then in also in 2 John. Um, and he, again, he, had, he seems to have two categories. First, a single individual, 
known as the true Antichrist. And I better re- I want to read that. Um, I don't think I had it on the screen, but um, I want to read this First uh, John just so you'll see. If you remember, First John's right back towards the end. Um, yeah, I think it's two eighteen through twenty seven. Just so you'll know, I'm not making this up. Children, it is the last hour. When was he writing this? 90s AD, it's the last hour. He's thinking this is the end times. Most of the other disciples are already dead. He's the only one who wasn't martyred. It's the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. 90s AD, he's going, can you believe it's been 60 years since Jesus arose and ascended to heaven. Can you believe all we've seen? He's going, Antichrists have come, and Antichrist is coming. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. So he gives this idea that there's, there's going to be one that would come that would deny the Father and the Son. So some believe in their eschatology in the end times, there's going to be a very clear one leader that's going to do that. And so um, when you think through that, going back to even the, the 1300s, uh, John Wycliffe, famous guy that most of you probably have heard about, he even said, the Pope may obviously be the Antichrist. 1300s, Roman Catholic, Catholic Pope. He was going, this guy has to be the little horn. This is the Antichrist. And yet, not just that sole single individual, but rather the multitude of popes holding that position, along with the cardinals and bishops of the church. They were saying, this, this Roman Catholic church has got so evil, they're defying God and speaking. If you go and read church history, you see they were speaking horrible things about God. And so, um, even as the Roman Catholic Church. And so, um, um, that, that was 1300s. And even in the um, 1500s, Martin Luther, again, you should probably know this guy, he was convinced that he was living in the last days. For him, the Pope fit all the criteria for Antichrist. And he says this, um, he declared, he is the, the Pope is the true end, end times Antichrist, who has raised himself over and set himself against Christ. And we would probably think of, man, how silly. Are you kidding me? We have no idea how difficult things were for people in the church at that point. Where true salvation, a true understanding of salvation, was so complex and so messed up, uh, a purity on who Christ was because of all of their different, seven different ways of works of God to where if you give more money, you, you, you get, go, it's, it's little works of salvation. So giving more money, your prayers to the saints, the different saints, not to God, all these things, um, all these things that, that, that Catholic, um, Catholic uh, people that believe in the, the works of salvation that they would do, and it defied God completely. And so um, um, all through, people have thought, this must be the end. So notice in verse 28 in chapter 7 with Daniel, his perplexed conclusion. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, 
My thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So note Daniel's perplexed conclusion. We think that we would be more like Jason Bourne, kind of just quickly understanding stuff and, and responding quickly, like we've got all this figured out. And, and here is Daniel with angelic beings there, and he's going, I didn't get a full understanding. My heart is still heavy from all this. So um, when we think through and that Daniel felt the weightiness of these grand visions, it, it affected him greatly. I think this reveals the humanness of the biblical author. He had seen and experienced God's saving graces over and over. We've seen that through the book of Daniel. And yet, he, he goes camping uh, for a night with uh, some lions, and then they don't eat him. And all these horrible things happen, and God saves and saves and saves and saves. And then God just does this big, broad brush stroke about his kingdom and what the end's going to be like. And Daniel feels the weight of that and goes, I need more. I want more. Jesus, in, in his time with the disciples in Acts chapter 1, um, so this is after his death, after his resurrection. He's on the earth for about 40 days. And it says in verse 6 there in chapter 1 of Acts, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They wanted to know. Why? Because it affected my life. I need to know the details. I need to know and I need to control. I need to know what happens. And notice Jesus' comfortable rebuke. It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then he goes into the famous Acts 1.8. But the Holy Spirit's going to come on you in power and you're going to be my witnesses. Hey, get your mind off of that. Your life is supposed to be about me. And you're going to be my witnesses right here in Jerusalem, where I just got slaughtered three days ago. Your life is going to be about me. You're going to be my witness with boldness. And Stephen's going to be killed right in front of you in just a few days. And then you're going to go to Judea and Samaria, the enemy, the horrific enemies that you've hated all your lives. And you're going to be my witnesses there. Get your mind on that and to the ends of the earth. And here we sit at 61st in Peoria in Tulsa because the same God that delivered and was renewing in Daniel is the same God that, that brought you to be here. Look at his power and his intimate care to get us to this point. Why would we doubt what he's doing? Why would we doubt and not trust in him? So the concluding walkaways was one of them. Just I think that um, do you see our desire to be godlike, to know all the things and to control all the things? So Adam and Eve wanted. That's what you and I want. I need to know more, God. I need to know the details. And God says that, that's mine. So first of all, just being grace oriented, a grace oriented posture of humility. We should be able to hold to truth yet remain loving and kind and welcoming. So two extremes ought to be avoided when discussing theological triage in confessional statements. So when we begin to talk about eschatology, end times, all those things, um, fundamentalism tends to operate as if every theological issue is of first importance. So if you've ever heard of, there's kind of three, some people will break it down into three tiers. And so the, the first tier being that of the matters of salvation. So um, those are non-negotiable. So, so if you don't have a clear understanding of the Trinity and you, you don't have that, that 
understanding of, of how that works, um, and not that all of us have a very clear understanding of the Trinity, but, but, but you defy that and don't believe in the Trinity, that may be a salvific thing. You may not be saved, right? If you don't have an understanding of um, the full deity and humanity of Christ, that he was fully God but fully man, um, you say that's not true, then you, you may not be saved. You're not understanding a core belief. If you don't have understanding on justification by faith alone, if you think it's by you doing your list and being good and trying to be a good moral person or going to church or whatever, um, you, you probably don't understand grace. You don't understand salvation. Um, also, authority and inerrancy of Scripture, if you've got problems there with a the virgin birth, those are first-tier things. Now, I'm not trying to be exhaustive there, so don't go home like, oh, he only listed these. Um, so please, just, that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying those are first-tier things that if you don't get those right, you're, you're probably not going to heaven. You're not saved. But second-tier are things like, um, these are not salvific, but boat, mode of baptism. Uh, do we baptize infants? Or do we baptize only believers? So what if we disagree on those things? Are we both saved? Yeah, we're, we're both believers. There's really strong believers that are extremely godly, more godly than I, that baptize infants every week. You go, oh, man, that's really tough. Well, what about um, gender issues? Are we um, egalitarian or complementarian? So you got the issue of, hey, um, can, can a woman be a pastor? And so I've got a friend, uh, he's a friend, he's a pastor over in, in Tulsa, and so he, he, one time we were talking, it kind of slipped out, and I, I thought he was going one way in, in the conversation, and he kind of, he went another way, but I kind of said, yeah, we're complimentarian also, and, and he, he went like, oh, well, we're not, and he very quickly said, well, you know, thank you, uh, I have three women that I have come in and preach for me, and they preach better than I could ever imagine preaching and teaching God's Word to my people, but I tell you what, if that's the worst that we've done, I think that we're going to be all right. Is his, is his body of people saved? Are those women saved? Is he saved? He's probably more godly than I am in a lot of areas. Does that bug me? Yeah. Do I think Scripture's clear on that? Yeah. Is he not a Christian? So, so when I do that, am I supposed to look down on him? Am I supposed to um, judge him? Am I supposed to, uh, is he a less of a Christian? I don't think he's less of a Christian. I, don't, I definitely don't think that he's not a believer. Um, I do say that he may be more godly in lots of different areas. So egalitarian, complementarian, um, reformed versus Arminian theology. So uh, just because God is God, we're probably going to get up there and get to heaven, and God's going to go, man, all of you guys are so foolish. It's this thing in the middle called this. You both missed it, and y'all argued about it the whole time. It's this. And, and so, again, it, even if we're right about our complementarian or right about our Reformed or Armenian doctrine, or we're right about having a plurality of elders and a, a clear ecclesiology, that membership matters, that we're supposed to be focused on disciple-making and sending the gospel out in missions. If we get there, it should only produce humility. We shouldn't be going, look at that stupid, foolish church. Look at that stupid, foolish pastor over there. Those people, oh my, do you hear the songs they sing? Oh my gosh, do you hear the, hear the things that they do in their service? It should only produce more humility. We may be the awkward one standing heaven one day going, oh man, I guess we did it a whole bunch of things wrong. We should have been a lot more loving and a lot more humble in that. And so these second tier areas are where we're all believers, but we may disagree and not be able to belong to the same church, right? So if we have people that come from ORU that say, why aren't you allowing female pastors? 
And then I lovingly show them, like I believe that the scripture is clear on the complementarian, that elders are males, elder, pastor, shepherd are males. It's not women are lesser in any way at all, but that, that's just the way that the scripture seemed very clear on that. And so it may be that you don't want to be a part of our body, but you're a solid, phenomenal um, woman or a solid, phenomenal man that believes that you want female pastors. Okay, let's love Jesus, but we probably won't be in the same church. We're still believers. Um, issues of aspects of ecclesiology, uh, aspects of membership, uh, the spiritual gifts. We're living Tulsa, right? The third tier, it's interesting because the third tier, it's things like music style. Uh, I mean, it, it saddens me that in the church, the biggest thing that I keep hearing is, can, can, can we sing Bethel songs? Like, I love this song. It's so, it's so scriptural and so good. I just don't know if we're supposed to. Is that breaking the rules? Like, God's up there like, I saw that. I saw that. You love the tune of it. You love the t- uh, I saw that. You should have looked it up better. That was Bethel. That, you sh- you, you're not getting in. You're not getting in. Like, that, that's what God's up there doing. And so, from music style, alcohol, eschatology, Bible translations, ESV, New King James, King James only, some of you may have grew up in those churches. Modes of um, modes and regularity of the Lord's Supper. Should we do it once a quarter, once a year, or every week? Are we better because we do it once a week? Now, I hope that we don't feel like we're better. I hope that you're gazing at Christ every single week in that. And so, um, third tier, we can be believers, and we could belong to the same church and still have different views of eschatology, Right? Could be all meal, it could be post meal, could be pre meal, and you're sitting right here. We all agree. Could say, hey, we will never partake of alcohol. Hey, we drink every single night. Hey, we we're going to do our um, things with with our family. We're going to do um, these certain things in our family equipping model. And then other people say, no, we're gonna we're gonna send them out to uh, the, let the, the this school um, teach them truths. And so all kinds of different things in third tier, but we can belong to the same. Um, body. So the second tier is the one that kind of brings some difficulty there. So that first one there, that can't we, can it lead to humility instead of division? Um, it may be fair to refer to some of those um, that, that, would, that would want to make all of those things equal, where there's not three tiers, they're all the same, it's black and white, and you're, you're just far off and you're disobedient. And, and on those things, if, you're, if you do it different than us, then that's kind of the, the, the ones who would hold that, they're worried about purity. So they're going, hey, I'm afraid if we ever, ever disagree on any little thing, we've lost purity. And then the other crowd is going like, man, you're, you're just too, you're too rigid, you're drawing line. Can't we just be Jesus lovers and get along? So their fight is for unity. The most important thing to them is unity, where the other crowd is going, no, the most important thing is purity. And so I think that we can have both. We haven't seen a lot of good examples about that. Like churches either land on one of those two. And so I think that we could be both. Um, so um, as we close, the second thing there um, is to keep our eyes fixed on God and his kingdom as our focus. God is screaming this in Daniel chapter 7. Um, we live in a world with many terrifying beasts and kings and kingdoms, but we're, we're sojourners and aliens. We're strangers knowing that he's promised us that he's got an everlasting kingdom for us. 
We've got to be a people who, who learn to be loving even though we differ on different stances and different things. We've got to be loving and we've got to be encouraging. And we've got to be bring people to put their, their, their mind and their heart and their feet on solid ground of Scripture. And then when we, we show that to them or they show that to us, that we can still love one another and get along. If it's things that we can't do that, hey, no, my, my, my one-month-old has to be baptized, then that probably isn't going to be here. Or, hey, my wife, she's a gifted teacher. She needs to be preaching. That's probably not going to be here. Okay, and so we're, those are things that we're going to say, no, we're, we have our beliefs and our, our, our convictions from Scripture. But you're not a lesser Christian. I'm not a lesser Christian because of that. And so we've got to learn to be able to, to do that a little bit better because the world sees all the fighting and all the things that's going on, and they go, of course I don't want to be a part of that. My workplace gets along better than your church. So... Um, Humility and put our focus on the King and His kingdom's coming. So let me pray as we go into uh, the Lord's Supper. Father, we do thank you for um, your clarity as, as broad and as vague as it is. We also see you were intentional in that. You're, you're not dumb. You're wise and you know exactly what we need and you knew how much exactness and preciseness that we needed. So this was your wisest plan. It wasn't second place that the wisest plan would have been for you to tell us what he looked like and what time and what century and what year and what month and what it was going to look like for our lives. That wasn't the wisest, and we got a, a default mode. We got your wisest, best plan in Scripture. We thank you for revealing to us. Would you forgive us for our arrogance and, and kind of thinking that we get to demand to you what we need and what we want? Would you allow us to be loving and humble to those people who disagree with us, whether it's eschatology, whether it's uh, spiritual gifts, whether it's um, different roles inside the church, Father, would you forgive us for being people who take graces given to us and turning them into stones to throw at others? Would you help us to be a loving people that are just on a path, on a journey, enjoying you and enjoying our time with one another? In your name we pray, amen. Amen.